0: We've been looking at the book of Esther. We've been looking at a story, if you are visiting with us this morning, that is fascinating because it is a story that deals with the invisible hand of God. Why do I say that? Is because it is one of two books in the Bible that never mentions God, Song of Solomon being the other one. And it is a book that really emphasizes how God has favor and he's watching over us. Let me get this. And this is a concept, the concept of favor throughout it. Our heroine, Esther, has it. And as we read through the story and we've come to the eighth chapter, we are aware that the evil man in our story is dead if you have a Bible, look at it. Look at chapter 7, the very last verse. They hanged Haman on the gallows. If you're unaware, this man Haman is a man who was the second most powerful man in the entire world. It's not a hyperbole. He was someone who had duped the king to kill every Jew in the world it's unfathomable sometimes it almost seems like hyperbole are you are you really like are every Jew yeah persia was the major kingdom in the world at this time from india india to ethiopia two times i think it's mentioned he had an order an edict signed by the king to kill every Jew in the world and i i'll say it again He was going to kill every Jew in the world. And I think about this every Jewish person you know, you wouldn't know if he was successful. I thought a lot about it, and it really hit me this week. I don't know why it hit me this week more, but for me, it's personal. For me, it's personal, because you may or not know that I've adopted my children, and we ran DNA testing on them, and one of my children came back Jewish. My child wouldn't be here today if Haman was successful. So this is no far off story. This has been the plan of Satan all along to try and destroy God's plan to reach the world. You got to remember, the Jewish people were not some great, powerful force within the world. It was one man named Abraham that God said, I'm taking you and I'm going to make you a nation. And the reason I'm going to make you a nation is because I'm going to try and reach the world. And I'm going to show you through weakness that my power is great so if you had somebody who was a 98 pound weakling and all of a sudden he did something super like he was able to lift 500 pounds it was because God was working through him that's the idea of what God did by picking one man after the Tower of Babel And the concept is is that these Jewish people are the avenue through which salvation is going to come to the world. This is why in the world today, if you read the newspapers or you watch the news, Israel is always in the focus, this small little nation. It is because it is a satanic focus to try and still today wipe out the Jews. And so as we come to chapter 8 of the book of Esther, our heroine, and our hero, our heroine being Esther and her cousin Mordecai, have successfully defeated Haman. But what I've been trying to emphasize over and over is the rest of the story. Because when you come to the end of chapter seven, the story's not over, but there's a sense like, wait, Haman's dead. Aren't we over with this story? And so I, from my youth, I kept thinking of this line and the rest of the story, the rest of the story, the rest of the story. This is a radio broadcaster who died, I believe, in 2005. His name was Paul Harvey. And he had a three to four-minute radio um, special. Because so, he, he was a newsman, but he also did this special news story, and it was called The Rest of the Story. And I was thinking how appropriate for us to really have this emphasize that when we come to chapters 8, 9, and 10, we need to know the rest of the story, because we're not done yet. And so I read an account last time as we went through, got ready to get into our story, and I have another one for you this morning. And I'm hoping that as I tell you this story, and it's, I'm going to tell you a story about a Jewish woman, that will help you remember the rest of the story, not so much with Esther, but just the concept, and as we continue to watch how God's hand is on here. I don't know if anyone knows who this woman is, but this is Golda Meir. And Golda Meir was always a big part of my youth. She was Prime Minister of Israel from 1969 to 1973. And Paul Harvey, the radio guy, told a story about her. And I want to use this today to emphasize the rest of the story. So this is transcribed from his radio broadcast, the rest of the story. He writes, December 8th, 1978, the magnificent adventure of former Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir came to an end. Now, I'm going to stop. He's talking about the fact that she died. And the fact that, you know, she was a major advocate to get Israel to be a nation in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, all right? Ben-Gurion, when you fly into Israel, you fly into the Ben-Gurion airport, he always spoke very highly of her, and I believe this thought of her and the way people thought of her was why she became the prime minister of Israel, eventually in 1969, so, so Harvey says, December 8, 1978, the magnificent adventure of former Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir came to an end. She was ours first, you might say, Harvey said, referring to her being an American. She was a Russian immigrant, ironically from the Ukraine, and he goes, surely you remember that she became a schoolteacher in Milwaukee but what you're about to hear relates to one of her earliest experiences in the American educational system. It marks the beginning of Golda Meir's lifelong role of a fundraiser and of something wonderful that she did for children in her class. The citizens of Wisconsin remember her even still, and with much pride they remember her dedication and her activism and they'll name a school after her. I went and checked it this week. What was the occasion, what did she do? Well, it was an injustice that Golda saw. She determined that children in her elementary class were required to pay for their textbooks. It was a nominal amount, of course, but the problem was that many of the children couldn't afford it. Golda insisted that a public school should be a free school and that poverty should not be an obstacle to public education. And more than enough of the school board agreed with her sentiments. On the other hand, Harvey says, Paul Harvey says, sentiment was not the issue. It was money, and there simply was not enough to go around. Certainly not enough for a free textbook program. But Golda was undaunted, and the energy that would characterize her later years as Prime Minister of Israel, she launched into a fund drive for the children of her school. By gathering and calling together a, a group of trusted associates to organize a team, which she called the American Young Sister Society. She got posters painted. She contacted the local media. She even did all of this organization before she got a hall rented. Finally, she got the American Young Sister Society together to hold a meeting on the subject of children's textbooks. She rents the hall and a meeting date was set. Then at the appointed evening hour, dozens of parents filed in and sat down eager to hear what Golda had to say. Harvey says she had never adopted such a cause or adopted any cause like this. Never before had she had spoken out on behalf of anyone but herself. And certainly never had she addressed a group this size. But there she was, facing the public and pleading for the rights of others for the very first time, speaking spontaneously and without notes, just speaking from the heart. Watching her, so many patterns were in the making, Harvey says. The selfless idealism served by a dramatic spark with a desire to communicate with those beyond her immediate peer group. And so began a life of solving problems and bridging gaps. After the meeting, a considerable amount of money was raised that evening to purchase textbooks for the poor children in Golda's school. Then at least one Milwaukee newspaper carried the story, and shortly thereafter, the young American Sister Society was disbanded. Their job was done, but Golda was not. She'll go on to have a lifelong of impact for other people. Now at this point, we can stop the story. Children got their textbooks. Everything's over. Now the rest of the story. I don't know if you know where this is going the exciting years harvey wrote that would follow would eclipse the solitary event of which you're just you've just learned because you see that i don't know why this chokes me up but i just think what she did was amazing the exciting years that that followed would that eclipse the solitary event of which you've just learned because you see that when Golda My Ear organized the American Young Sister Society, and when she rented the hall, and when she gave the impressive, the impressive address on behalf of those poor children in her school, Golda was not a schoolteacher. She was a student, she was in the fourth grade. She was 11 years old. And now, as Harvey says, you know the rest of the story. She started young, and she wanted to make a difference, and she put her neck on the line. Like I said, I could have stopped early and would have been fine. She made the difference. She's a heroine, just like I believe our Queen Esther is a heroine. So as we come to chapter eight, as Warren Wiersbe has said, Haman is dead. This murderous edict, though, is still in play. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Esther, is that the land of Persia has a rule that if a king makes an edict, it can't be reversed. So now we have a problem, and now we have to come up with a solution, and our problem it was that how are we going to deal with this the plan is is that from when haman is killed in the end of verse 7 i mean chapter 7 we've got 9 months to go and every jew is going to be killed so we walk through this story and we look at verse 1 of chapter 8 the king gives the house of haman to first esther and then Mordecai. they work it out Verse two, the king takes off his signet ring and gives Mordecai incredibly this power. Verse three, Esther now says, this isn't over. And I want you to continue to remember that, look at verse three, Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet and wept and implored. Those are strong words. Those are not crocodile tears. We have to realize that 10 to 15 million Jews were going to be killed, and there was an edict that couldn't be reversed. How were they going to solve this problem? The king comes back and says, okay, look at verse 8. You write to the Jews. He's talking to Mordecai. You come up with something. And then from verse 9 down to verse 15, we saw this incredible plan. We're going to let the Jews fight back, and we're going to get into that next week it's going to be incredible but that's the plan from verse 915 they're going to they're going to fight back and he sends out a message that they're going to get to defend themselves and we talked about this last week and we talked about the fact that in the end the jewish people just jumping ahead are going to kill 75,000 people it's an incredible number and it 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 be it's hard this is we have to theologically really think through this and not just run through this because the reality of this is, is if I told you that all of you were going to be killed in nine months because somebody had made an edict that every Christian gets killed in America in nine months, but now I come to you on this day and I tell you, guess what? You get to fight back. How would you respond? I'm still not happy, but look, look at verse Verse 16. For the Jews, when they get this message, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. We're going to really get into that verse today. And what verse 17 does as well, we're going to get into. Because we're talking about the principles of this. I just think these are two of the most important passages in the book of Esther. As we look at the rest of the story. Look at verse 17. In each and every province, in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen them, on them. So as we went through this chapter, what I wanted to do was like, let's go through some principles. And the first five we've already accomplished. We've talked about the fact that we always have to remember when we look at the book of Esther, it is a book about how God has his hand on Israel. And, and, and even this week I was reminded, sometimes Israel is not a perfect nation. Sometimes they fail, but it is not our job to judge them. Our job is to honor them. You have to remember Genesis chapter 12. God says, those who bless Israel are blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. That is a principle for a nation. That is a principle for an individual. Make sure that always resonates within you. The people who don't get this don't understand God's choice of Israel. And if you or somebody says, Well, I know the Jews did this and I know the Jews did that, you're right. They did, they haven't been perfect. But you have to understand at the heart of it is God has said, I'm reaching the world through these people. And if they're going to be obstinate, let God deal with them. Let God send the Assyrians in. Let God send the Babylonians in, the Persians in. My job is not to be judge and jury of the Jews. My job is to bless them. And I think you need to grasp that. And especially in this day and age, and maybe if you go to work or you go somewhere and you engage somebody and they're talking about how horrible and how evil and how wicked the Jews are, you need to remind them that it is not because the Jews are great, but because God has made them great. And your anger often, and the individuals who are so jealous and hateful of Jewish people are because they ultimately don't like God. And so, oh, that's not true. Yes, it is. You see, God was spit in the face. The Tower of Babel is not just some monument that was erected. It was, we're spitting in your face, God. God. We want nothing to do with you. So God splits the people up and scatters them and says, okay, you want to make a tower out of heaven? I'm not going to let you do it. But I'm going to take one man, and I'm going to make that man the blessing to the entire world. And the people who don't understand it don't understand God's plan. So the first principle, and this is through every chapter of this book, we must always remember God's hand is always upon Israel. And we looked at Esther, how she modeled interceding for others. We looked at even this story today, how Golda Meir interceded for others. How that is something that runs through the scriptures. That is something for you all to think about. Because we ran through Old Testament, we ran through New Testament passages to be someone who cares for other people. Then we talked about how God turns the heart of kings. We went into Proverbs and we talked about how God wants us to be praying for governmental leaders. First Timothy two, that is not something that is an option. You may not agree with the president, you may not agree with the Supreme Court, you may not agree with our governor, you may not agree with our mayor, but it is our responsibility to pray for them. It is our responsibility to pray for our police officers, our judges, people in government roles. We must trust the Bible always historically is accurate. This story, as we went through it, we continually saw facts and places and individuals, and as much as that can be can be confirmed, it has been confirmed. And this is not a book that is a fairy tale, and it must resonate within you that this is a book. Again, even this morning, I checked on something, and I was did a Google search, and I was just verifying to make sure that I I had it right, that there are only two books that don't mention God. And one of them being obviously Esther, but the other being Song of Solomon. And the responses of why Song of Solomon doesn't mention God were just made up. And it's just this, this continual attack against Scripture. You must realize that the world doesn't want the Bible to be true. But Jesus says... His word is truth. And then we talked about understanding the role of government in God's hands and how important it is for us to be good citizens because the people, we're going to get more into this, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, are the ones who the government enlist to then fight and defend themselves. And they're also going to get other government people in. That's a surprise haha, for next week. They're also gonna get other government people and they're going to, that's how they're gonna go against the decree. we are gonna get the fight back, but ultimately they become citizens who bear the sword, Romans 13. We live in a world today that doesn't understand that the government has the right to bear the sword because they represent God. Now, not every government is perfect, but the governments do get the right to bear the sword. And so... Whether it's our soldiers, whether it's our policemen, whether it's a guard, they get to protect people. Because sadly, we live in a world with fallen people, other people who do bad. It's overwhelmed. I know, again, I always say that you don't, most people don't read a newspaper. But yesterday was so overwhelming, the amount of killing and shooting and stabbings and bad things that happened to people in our community over the last two, three days. It just, it's It's overwhelming. Yes, we need to be able to have our policemen armed. We need to have people who have security, that they're armed, because we live in a world, and our job is to be good citizens. And sadly, the world doesn't have good citizens. Well, let's go into this new one. Faith in good news brings joy. This principle and then the application comes from verse 16. Look at this. Look at verse 16. And it says this, for the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. They hear the message. It's gone off by the early Pony Express. It's gone throughout an incredible territory from India to Ethiopia, India to Ethiopia. It has been vast. And as Warren Wiersbe, the commentator says, this chapter begins with Esther in tears in verse 3. But it ends with the, joy, the Jews rejoicing and feasting. Happiness of one kind or another is mentioned in this paragraph at least seven times. This is the eighth feast mentioned in the book of Esther, by the way. The Jews had been mourning and fasting, but now they were ecstatic with joy. And again, the fasting was a way to ingeniously write that they were appealing to God without ever mentioning God's name. Wearsby goes on to say, the thing that made the difference was not the writing of the decree or even its distribution in the various provinces. The thing that made the difference was the fact that Jews believed the decree. Think about that. They believed that they were going to be able to defend themselves. It was their faith in Mordecai's word that changed their lives. They had hope, joy, and peace because they had faith in what the prime minister said. And what I want you to see and I want you to understand is that when we get the gospel, we have joy. And, and, And maybe it's something that I don't command enough. But listen, do you know that you're commanded to have joy? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice is a command from the Apostle Paul. Philippians chapter um four but the book of philippians 16 17 times the book of philippians mentions joy and when we reason i said this is good news isn't it interesting and ironic that the gospel is from the greek word euangelion which means good news this is exactly what the jews got they got good news and now today in 2024 we've got the greatest news It's something that hasn't been realized. It hasn't come to realization. We're not in heaven yet, but it is guaranteed. Blessed assurance we sang. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 15. I just want to share a few verses with you. And I think, I want you to think as the apostle Paul, who was in prison when he wrote the book of Philippians, continues to model joy. I think this is such a good challenge for all of us To think about having a sense of joy always no matter what situation we're in Paul was in prison chained to the praetorian guard in the book of Philippians but he continues to talk about the joy that he had because he had confidence of where he was going and so in the book of Romans chapter 15 when you look at the Apostle Paul, I mean, yeah, he's writing about our self-denial and the way that even Gentiles now get the gospel. <clears throat> That's what he's talking about in chapter 15. He says this. Look, look at verse 8, and he says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers, the promises about through Israel. And for Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will, I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Most of us are Gentiles today. This idea that we have salvation is something that we should rejoice in, that we can be overwhelmed that we're going to heaven. Verse 11, again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles, and let the peoples praise him. And Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he will rise to rule over the Gentiles. And in him shall the Gentiles hope. Well, you know, that's theologically kingdom. We're waiting for Jesus to return. He is our ruler. He's a Jewish leader. But look at verse 13. This is the verse I want you to start. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You want power? And I think power is mentioned in every book of the Bible. I heard a citation to that yesterday. There's a sense where it all starts with joy. There's a sense, like I wish I could tell you that you come and if we were a health, wealth, and prosperity church, oh, you know, you just pray, you you give some money, and everything's gonna work out well. The reality of it is the sadness of the thing is, is that people die. Maybe that's why I was thinking about it in the middle of the night last night. The reality is people die. And, and people get sick and they don't get better. And, and then people bring great destruction to other people. They ruin lives. They ruin families. They ruin, you know, the, the, for those of you who know, the lady that killed my neighbor and then killed another la- lady Two months later, with her driving going 100 miles an hour down Indianapolis Road, she got sentenced for, like, that's going to net out to a year and a half for killing, in essence, two people. And I look at it, and I say, there's great sadness, and there's great despair. It hurts. You know, you lose somebody. You love them. You care for them. It, It takes away from the quality of your life. And we can say, oh, they were 85, and they were supposed to die. But the reality of it is, no, whether you're 85, 75, 65, you know, I was going through the ages of people who died. Maybe it doesn't mean anything to any of you, but when Larry Wiggins died at 58 and then his wife dies a few years later, it's young. And when, when the Conroy, is Betty and Skip died, you say, well, oh, they were in their 80s. No, it was young. Look, the idea of why do we have joy is because Jesus Christ has defeated death for us. And even though death hasn't been vanquished in the sense it's gone away because we still have to deal with it, I want us all to have hope, joyous hope. Look at 1 John. I'm going to take two passages. In 1 John, I think it's fascinating. And 1 John chapter 1, as the apostle John is trying to get people to understand this gospel is real, he says this in verse 3 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. What we've seen, what we heard, we proclaim to you. What do you mean you've seen and heard? He's trying to get them to understand this, is, this isn't just made up. This is physically real. This is reality. And he says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In these things we write, these things we write. So what? So that our joy may be complete. You see, when you become a believer, you have joy. And when you tell others and they get saved, you have joy. Because the reality of it is is if you're a believer and loved ones around you aren't saved, there's always going to be a sense where you can't be completely joyous. And see, I think when a person is genuinely born again, they understand that word that I shared at the opening of the service when I talked about the word unless. See, all you think that really matters unless a man is born again, unless a man believes. That's why Paul uses the word complete. He's not just saying that, that I want you to have joy, he himself, I mean, the apostle John is saying, I want my joy to be complete because I care about you and I love you and I want you to be saved just as much as I am saved. Therefore, we write these things so that our joy may be complete. And no matter what you're gonna face in this world, as a believer, why do we have joy? Well, without us turning there, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, joy. Because when the Holy Spirit resides in us, he's producing joy. And if you'll turn to 1 Peter, I want you to see this one verse. This will be the last one we turn on this section. 1 Peter chapter one. In 1 Peter, when I turn there, you should say, oh, I know what the theme of 1 Peter is. It's about suffering. It's about difficulty. It's about hardship. And it is. And God, through the apostle Peter, says in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be what? Born again. Now if you're visiting, the only way to get to be born again is you believe this message that you're a sinner, that the wage of your sin is death, that Jesus was God and man who died on the cross and when he rose again, he offers you through faith to commit your life to him, to believe in Jesus. So he's caused us and this is from God's side that he's Working in us and he causes us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ through the dead. To obtain an inheritance, verse four says, which is imperishable undefiled, and, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Idea, I, idea here is that it's secure. Verse five, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be re- revealed in last time. Now look at verse six. In this you, what? Greatly rejoice, This is what you should be doing. This is why I put it up there. Enjoy it. Enjoy the good news of the gospel. Now, it's not the same as the Persians are letting you fight against, but the idea is you see this principle. When you get good news and you know God's behind it, you rejoice. And so, verse 8, jump down there, and he goes, Although you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with, with joy inexpressible and full of joy, full, full of glory. Listen, if you're turning back to Esther, 25 years ago, I gave a sermon very similar. And there was somebody in our service and they were ironically up in the balcony. And I talked about if you don't have joy because you're a believer, you need to go back and ask why you might need to check yourself why you're not having joy. And it might be that you're not saved. Because at the heart of, remember, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy is this exuberance. There's this incredible awareness that everything is secure for you. Well, after the service, the person in the balcony wrote me one of the most scathing letters I ever got as a pastor. Put me in my place. How dare you, young pastor, tell me that i don't have joy and i'm not a believer i still remember it i've kept it i'm not going to say who did it but the thing is is shortly after that that person left our church shortly after that person went to another church and then faded after that church because i was following i had a relationship with this person and eventually this person basically stopped going to church at all and basically then started teaching All kinds of weird doctrine about baptism saves and aspects of the law. And for the last 10, 15 years of this individual's life, never got engaged in church. And then they died. And speaking to their family, there was great concern because this person died with no joy. Bitter person. My thing is not to condemn anyone, but just to warn you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Rejoice. You get good news from God. You have joy. The next principle comes in verse 17. And this is interesting and it deals with conversion as well. Look at verse 17. In each and every province, remember there's like 127 of these provinces. In each and every city, wherever the king's command and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews. A feast and a holiday and many among the peoples of the land became Jews for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. What happened is they got converted. Fear of God brings conversion. This is God's desire. God wants people to come to faith in him. And, and, and one of the things in which people, when we look at this story, it's fascinating, again, because remember, God is not mentioned, so instead of saying fear of God, he says dread of the Jews, the author, and the word for dread there is a word that means to be afraid, but it's not the exact same word that's used in the book of Proverbs, like the fear of the Lord, okay, but it's a synonym, and sometimes it is used, in other locations of the bible for that concept dread is more like a specific contemplation of an event they had these they had this dread and this dread is going to come up in chapter 9 as well what are they saying well again it's not a they're looking at it and saying this isn't a coincidence that all of a sudden the tables are turned. Haman's dead. They're hearing Haman's dead. They're hearing that the king is now supporting the Jews. They're hearing now that Mordecai's the second person in command, and they're saying, this is not a coincidence. The Jews were people in exile. They were going to be easily wiped out. They had no power. They had no army. They had no way to defend themselves. Unless the king, all of a sudden, everything turns. These people connect it. They look at it, and they say, there is no coincidence. Again, for those of you who were there last week, an article in a newspaper that I remind you of where our distinguished writer in our newspaper said, hey, these coincidences are just that. Don't try to explain them away and think that God is working. Why say, no, these people got it that God is working. And they had fear, and they recognized, oh, my goodness. We thought we were going to kill the Jews. We thought we were going to win. But, oh, my goodness, God has come through for them. He is fighting for them. Listen, you understand, they were so terrified. Look what that line says. They became Jews. Where does it say whatever, there was glad for Jews holiday, and many of the people of the land became Jews. They got converted because they recognized you can't play with God. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 19. Here's a principle that ties into this. In the book of Proverbs, remember the book of Proverbs is a series of short, pithy statements. In Proverbs chapter 19, verse 23 The author, Solomon, says the fear of the Lord, and this is the strong, this is the fear, like be afraid of God, not just awe or anything like that. Verse 23, the fear of the Lord leads to what? Life. Listen, this is a truism, whether it's salvation, whether it is... Anybody, you know, like, oh, should I be a thief? No, I fear God will have police catch me. Should I do something sexually immoral? No, I think God's gonna catch me. Should I lie? No, I think God will catch me. The idea of life is always the blessed state of existence, but it starts, I believe, with salvation. And the idea here is the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied untouched by evil. How blessed are do all of you have sleep? That when you put your head on the pillow, you're not fearful because you are going to be caught by someone, found out by someone. Once again, you did this bad thing. Now, not all, we're not all perfect. I get that. But it's far different between the believer and the unbeliever who consistently, continually has guilt before them for a life that is lived apart from God's ways. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the foundation of a life that understands that, goodness, you don't mess around with God. It's not coincidences. God sees and knows everything. And last verse this morning, turn in the Bibles to Romans chapter three because I think this is fascinating. I was reading some excerpts this week on this very concept of fear of God. And in Romans chapter three, the apostle Paul is describing to all of us salvation and he's talking about from chapters 1 through 8 he's talking about our salvation but when he comes to chapter 3 he's talking about how sinful man is and you should all know that from Romans chapter 3 verse 10 down to really verse 19 it's one of the most detailed descriptions of man's sin you look at verse 10 and it says there's none righteous there's not even one right and we all get that but I think, as I've often stated with list, the problem with list is, is that as you continue to go down list, sometimes you get lost and you get tired. And you may not have seen and might not have thought about the, pro- the prominence of verse 18. Verse 18 is this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. See, unsaved man doesn't think that God is gonna judge them. God is gonna come through with his penalties. Unsa- unsaved man laughed at noah unsaved man looks at god and says he's not really sending people to hell he's not really going to do that there's no fear that god is going to work things out that maybe a policeman catches me or the judges get me or anything like that there is no fear of god before their eyes therefore they live as if they are the masters of their life so how does this help us Tell people God is serious about his warnings and his offers. I think that should be underlined. I forgot to underline it. Those are the fill in the blanks. God is telling people that he's judging people. And you can just cite Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, where Jesus, as he's telling his disciples to go out, he tells them what? Don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the body and throw the soul into hell. We need to let people know God isn't playing games. As much as I would love to think that everyone gets into heaven, the reality of it is, is God is very clear. So unless a man is born again, there is a place called the lake of fire. It is serious. And God is someone that you need to fear. The fear of the Lord leads to life. Some of your friends and family members need to know this. And, and lovingly and graciously, you, you, again, we don't wanna be frothing at the mouth, but we wanna let them know that God is clear on this. This is why people die. The wage of sin is death. God has said, okay, I'm gonna let you see physical death as a reminder, as a point that I am going to also have something called the second death, which is when he throws people to the lake of fire. We need to let people know they need to fear this. This isn't a game. And as we're watching the events of the Middle East play out, people got to start focusing how the end is getting nearer and nearer and nearer. For those of you who regularly attend, I sent out that video on Ezekiel 38. I hope some of you watched it. I know a few did, but I hope more and more of you did. I'm more aware that we are in the final days than ever before. We could see Russia, Turkey, Iran all of a sudden coming down on Israel. Quickly, swiftly, and we quickly ushered in to the end times. God says no one knows the day or hour. I got that. But we, it's very clear that believers are not of the night. We're of the day. We know what's going on. And when we study that Ezekiel passage, and if you didn't get the link, see me after the service, understand that Israel is only regathered one time after being scattered. They were scattered in 70 A.D., 70 AD, when Jesus told them, Hey, listen, you know, uh, it's going to be a bad time for you, Israel. You've basically you've rejected me and you're going to be scattered. But then they're going to be regathered again as dry bones, unsaved people. That has happened. Yes, it was in 1948. Yes, Gold of My Year played a big role in that. Yes, we, we, we're waiting and waiting and waiting. But now we're watching people talk in my lifetime. Realistically, for the first time, we're on the brink of World War III. And, and, and you watch what happened with Iran. Why is Iran continually in the news? Iran is one of the nations, I believe, in Ezekiel 38. So people need to fear. So here, this is where we're at. The story's not over. I can't wait to get into chapter nine. I've already done my study for it. I just want us to know the story's not over. God has a plan, God has a program. And we see how Esther intervened and helped, Golda Meir helped her people. But as we watch anti-Semitic attitudes around the world, let's remember these principles of supporting the Jews and honoring them and praying for them and trying to be as positive as we can for them. I'm not gonna jump through all the other principles today, though we just hit six and seven. Let us always remember faith brings good news. Faith in good news brings joy, is what I'm saying. So tell people the good news. But just today, rejoice in it, and we're gonna take communion. I want us to focus on that. And then let us also be people, let us also be people who recognize that the fear of God brings life. And it's not an accident that in First John chapter four, God talks about the fact that we no longer fear, meaning we've passed Out of fear, because as believers, we've passed out of judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that the story of Esther is so relevant today. It's not just an ancient historical book that has no relevance today. It's fascinating, God, to see your hand upon Israel and to see how his life is playing out today, that God, you, you're going to protect Israel, but you're also going to use Israel. And we just pray for so many Jews that they get saved before they have to go into the tribulation. Use today, God, mightily for each and every person that's here to think about whether they fear God or not. Fear God is healthy even for the believer, but thankful for the believer, we don't fear the judgment because we've passed out of death into life. May we rejoice in that, and especially as we come to the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen.